Hello, and welcome to the podcast of Emmanuel Assemblies of God in Knoxville, Tennessee. We're so glad you've taken the time to listen. If you're ever in our area, we invite you to join us for one of our worship services. For times and locations, please visit at EmmanuelAG.com. In the year 1947, three physicists working at Bell Labs, their names were John Barkeen, Walter Britton, and William Shockley. They invented the first working transistors. You got my picture of my transistor up there? There we go. This is what the first transistor looked like. The transistor would replace the much larger and more expensive vacuum tubes in electronic technology. By 1952, the transistor began to appear in commercial products. The first one was a hearing aid. By 1954, the first transistor radio came out. There it is. That's called the Regency TR1. It's made small enough you can carry it around. You didn't have to carry all those vacuum tubes and power supplies and heat. By the end of that decade, they figured out how to make these integrated circuits. They would take these single chips, go to the next slide, these single chips that contained many of these transistors in various configurations. Well, the 1960s would prove to be a decade of assassinations, war, and protests. Very few could imagine how far this technology would bring us over the next 50 years. The first microprocessor chip was invented in 1971 making Pac-Man a reality by 1980. <laughs> it would eventually put computers in every home and a cell phone in everyone's hand. The first smartphone, <laughs> the first smartphone hit the store in 1994. The first smartphone could send faxes and emails. Made it like that. You guys make fun of my flip phone. <laughs> it could send faxes and emails, but they weren't networked to the internet until 2001, so I guess that first smartphone must have used a dial-up connection or something. I don't know. Today, nearly everything is connected to the internet. They make smart refrigerators, smart door locks, your cameras. Smart mirrors. Smart mirrors. Seriously? Yep. Connected yep. to the internet? That's yep. crazy. It's a fitness thing. Really? You got, you got mirrors that cling to your wall and they have like fitness programs attached to them. It's crazy to the internet. My goodness. Your wow. coffee pot, everything's connected. You'd be lucky to find something without being connected to the internet today. Transistor technology is in everything we use today. You remember the kids' toys back in the day? You pulled the string and then walk. Right? You know, I, I would take those apart. Yeah, I'd find that little record in there that spun when you pulled the string against the spring. I was good at taking things apart unless it had springs. If that spring ever went, I could never get it back together. But now, they just put a chip in it. That's it. And they keep talking long after the kids are done playing. There's nobody there to pull that string and it's still talking to my kids. And I'm like, shut up already. Everything has a chip in it today. You know the newer cars today? You press the gas pedal. Used to be there was a cable connected to the throttle body, right? Some of the new cars, not anymore. You press the gas pedal, it goes to a computer, and the computer decides what the throttle is going to do. You're not even driving your own car. A computer is. <laughs> Everything today is controlled by these chips. I wonder if those three guys, those three scientists, 
could even imagine the future that began when they invented the transistor, the very first transistor. The book of Acts is also a book of new beginnings. It's the beginning of Jesus' new position in heaven as head of the church. It's the beginning of the church on the earth, which is his body. Do you think about that? There was no body of Christ on the earth before Jesus' church. It's the beginning of a new kind of union between God and man through the Holy Spirit. Brand new. It introduces to Christians a new kind of human that did not exist before. Brand new. I wonder what kind of things God has in his mind for us. You know, when he brought that new creation into existence. You know, here we are 2,000 years later, and we're still trying to get back to the book of Acts. But I wonder if we would have grown in God how far we would be as a people today. I've got here a, um, this is a beginner textbook for electronics. Talks about all the basics, magnetic flux, resistance, Ohm's law, um, uh, power supplies, all the, just the very, very basics. But you got to go way beyond this if you're going to make a smartphone or a computer or a car that drives itself. You build on these. These don't change. These are true. But you go way beyond it. You don't keep laying that foundation. You accept this as true, and you go on. Listen to what Jesus, or, or the writer of Hebrews, said to us. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands, and about the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. See, I read that and I get the idea that there should be progression in the church and progression in our Christian lives. You know, um, when you build a house, you do a foundation, then you do a wall, then you do a roof, you know, you put carpet in last. You know, you don't go out there and you lay carpet down and then try to fit a slab under it, right? You start with a foundation and step by step by step you build and you grow. You just don't pour a slab, a foundation, and then live there. Could you imagine pouring a slab and pitching a tent on your slab? This is my new house. <laughs> I'm sure glad I've got a good foundation. You know, we've got a good foundation in God. Well, what kind of building now can we do? Mm. Yeah. So, listen to how they say it in the Message Bible. I just like how it reads. I don't study the Message Bible a lot. It's a paraphrase. But I like, sometimes it, it uh, says things in a way that, that just make you think. He says, so come on, let's leave the preschool finger-painting exercise, exercises on Christ and get on with the grand work of art. Grow up in Christ. The basic foundational truths are in place. Turning your back on salvation by self-help and turning in trust toward God. Baptismal instructions, laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment, God helping us. We'll stay true to all that, but there's so much more. Let's get on with it. Hmm. He's saying, you know, uh, resurrection of the dead is a foundation. It's a basic. Salvation is a basic. The judgment to come is the foundation. It's the basic. But what does God have for us as a church and as Christians? 
once we accept those basics? How far can we go? What do you think maturity looks like from God's perspective? I wonder what the church would look like if it had advanced at the same rate that those electronic technology advanced after the invention of the transistor. How far would we be? In just the 30 years of history covered in the book of Acts, we see these mass salvations, mass healings, along with mass riots, right? <laughs> we see disciples literally walking out of jails. Remember when Peter got kicked in the side and then the angel woke him up and said, let's go. They walk out. They just walk out. The gates to the, to the city opened by themselves. Uh, I don't know about you, but that one bothers me a little bit. Because I'm like, how did the gates open? Like, if they didn't describe it, you could say, well, angels must have grabbed the gates and opened them. But he's walking with the angel. The angel didn't do it. He's seeing into the spirit. He's seeing angels. Those gates, physical things just yielded. Hmm. To the Son of God. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. Earthquakes happened, set Paul and Silas free, right? Philip was caught up in the Spirit, dematerialized and materialized somewhere else. We don't know of anybody in the Bible that happened to except Jesus in his resurrection body. What's the limit on God? People had visions all the time, they were led by the Spirit. The reality is God is much bigger and much more powerful than we've allowed him to be in our minds and our hearts. Amen. Remember, the book of Acts is our story. It starts our story. These things that they did were foundational. They were examples. We, we have, you know, we have, the Bible is, you know, what covers 4,000 years of history in the Old Testament and about 60 in the New Testament. And of that, 30 of it is new creation history. We have 30 years of history in the Bible. Why? Why did, why did we only have so little when we have so much of everything else? It's because he gave us the spirit. We're supposed to be living it out. We're supposed to be walking and building on it. So when I was in Bible school, I took a class on the book of Romans. And uh, I've been studying the Bible all my life. So when we got to this class uh, uh, on Romans, we were in a discussion board or something, and I had to answer a question. Or I can't remember what the question was. But I remember I made my statement, and I defended my view by quoting from the book of Galatians. Now, you know, as you know, Galatians and Romans were written by Paul. And so I, to me, having studied this already, I thought, hey, this is not shouldn't be a problem. But I got corrected for that. It's like, no, why are you quoting Galatians? This is a class on Romans. We're supposed to evaluate uh, Romans in its own context. That's what he said. So I made a correction, and I had to make sure I quoted Romans when I was discussing Romans. But I'm not in Bible college today, so what I want to do is continue our study in the book of Acts by going to the book of Ephesians. <laughs> Last week we looked at uh, the introduction to the book of Acts, the first 11 verses. And we ended up with the ascension. Um, in Acts uh, chapter 1, verse 9, the very last two verses we read, it talked about how Jesus was lifted up when they were watching, and, and, and he, a cloud took him up out of their sight. And then, remember, the two men appeared dressed in white, and they said, This Jesus, who had been taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you have watched him go to heaven. So that was the perspective of the ascension by the men who stood there and witnessed him on earth, watching him go into heaven. And then if you remember, we looked at Daniel 
chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, because that was the perspective of the ascension from heaven. Daniel was having these night visions, and God was showing him things to come. And while he was having these visions, he saw the Ancient of Days, and he saw Jesus. It says, uh, it says in the, one like a son of man was coming, he came to the Ancient of Days. And in verse 14, to him was given dominion, honor, and a kingdom, so that all peoples, nations, and populations of all languages might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away. So when Jesus ascended, he received a kingdom, a kingdom that will not pass away, a kingdom that will be the kingdom that will include people from all nations, all people group to worship him. Now, if you'll go with me to Ephesians chapter 4, uh, the passage today will be Ephesians 4, 7 through 16. Um, so if you find that spot, stick your finger in there. We're going to stay in there for the rest of the rest of the meeting here. Although we'll jump around some, we'll keep coming back to it. I think uh, Ephesians is a theological perspective, in a way. It tells you uh, what Jesus did. It's not an eyewitness account, but it's telling you what happened when Jesus was ascending. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Verse 8. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive the captives, and he gave gifts to people. Now this here is a quote from Psalm 68. If you go back and read the whole Psalm 68, that section it's dealing with um, uh, God ascending Mount Zion to inhabit the tabernacle, or the temple, rather. But Paul here is ascribing that to Jesus ascending to the right hand of the Father. And he says, when he ascended, it, it says, if we go on verse uh, 9, now this expression, he Ascended. What does it mean that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? Remember, I said Jesus defeated the devil for us. The devil was not a problem for him, was it? Because he was already ascended. He had to come down to beat the devil. He had to come down and become like a man to even get in the ring with the devil. He was so far above the devil. The devil was not a problem to him personally, except for the fact that the devil had us. And he came for you and me. So what does it mean that he ascended except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. So he's not just in heaven. Jesus descended to the lowest parts of the earth and then ascended all the way to the highest heavens. So he fills all things. The closest, you know, there's you can make a whole study out of this one phrase right here, this descension and ascension. But I'm going to read one passage from Philippians. Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse 5. It says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, as he already existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, death on a cross. For this reason, God also highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. In Acts 22.7, uh, they quote 
uh, an Old Testament passage concerning Jesus. He says, you did not abandon my soul to hell or to Hades, the place of the dead, because they laid him there. But God raised him up and exalted him. So Jesus fills all things. He goes on, Ephesians 4, verse 11. And he gave some as apostles. So on his ascension, he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. So when Jesus ascended, it's when he gave these gifts to the church, apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, evangelists. Right? And I know you've probably met people, and I have too, who think who really believe they're God's gift to the church. <laughs> Not in a good way. But the, the idea, sometimes people, you know, in, especially in our Christian culture today, everybody running around, I'm evangelist so-and-so, I am, <laughs> I am apostle so-and-so, I am prophet so-and-so. We're so big on titles, you know. You can get the idea if you give, give yourself to these titles that uh, the church just exists so that we can have these special people. But Jesus said what? I think it's Matthew 25. He says, don't call anybody on earth father or teacher, because you have one father in heaven. You have one teacher, right? You are all brothers, is what the Bible says. Hmm. So, so the, the thing, the opposite is actually true. God gave these gifts to the church, so not so that these people could be special, but that's so we could all be special, hmm. so that we could all be equipped for the work of the ministry, because we all have a role to play, and it's all essential. The reason is so that we can all grow to maturity and we can all do the work of the kingdom. My prayer when I first got married with Rinkin, we were looking for a church to attend. And my prayer was, God, please bring us to a church where these gifts are in manifestation. Please bring us to a place where the apostles and prophets and words of wisdom and words of knowledge and all of these things happening because I knew that we needed to be equipped for ministry. Amen. I knew that we needed something that we would find in a church that was flowing in the gifts of the Spirit. And it's, it's been our prayer. It still is our prayer. I, I want, even this church now that we're in this position, we, we want to increase in the things of God and in the things of the Spirit because there is something in those gifts that will equip us for service. We can go out and we can work hard in our own effort and we will do some good. But when we are equipped by the Spirit of God, now, when you put your hand to it, prospers because you're not working by yourself you're working with somebody who's bigger than you amen Amen. yeah so what i had discovered this week this is really interesting because looking at this with the fivefold ministries the apostles prophets evangelists pastors and teachers i started looking at it and i'm not going to go deep in here this is another one we could spend you know five weeks on a week on apostle, a week on prophet, a week. But I'm not going to. I just want to hit it very quickly. What I discovered, just looking up, you know, you look at the definitions and you look it up. What I discovered was that um, every one of these describes an aspect of Jesus' ministry. In other words, Jesus is the apostle. Jesus is the, what's the next one? Prophet. Jesus is the evangelist. Jesus is the teacher, and Jesus is the, what's the last one? Pastor, did I skip pastor? Pastor, (laughs) whatever order it was. Um, Apostle just simply means a delegate, a messenger, one sent forth with orders. Go with me to Hebrews 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Jesus, 
He was faithful to him who appointed him as Moses was in all his house. Jesus was sent by the Father. Jesus is the apostle. Isn't that cool? A prophet, the simple definition of a prophet, there's a lot of overlap in the definitions of these really, but a prophet is an inspired speaker. Do you think Jesus was an inspired speaker? (laughs) Really? (laughs) How in the world did his words survive this long if he wasn't an inspired speaker? (laughs) Um, Acts 3.22, Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your countrymen. To him you shall listen regarding everything he says to you. He will raise up a prophet like me. That's why, do you remember when they went to John the Baptist and they said, Are you Elijah? No. Are you the prophet then? Are you the Christ? No. Are you Elijah? No. Are you the prophet? They were expecting the prophet. It was a prophecy. They were looking for the prophet. Even Jesus said after he got rejected in his hometown, he was like, a prophet is without honor in his hometown with his own kin, right? Jesus is the prophet. An evangelist is a preacher of the gospel. Was Jesus an evangelist? Did he preach the gospel? I think so. Do you remember uh, in Matthew 11, starting at verse 4, John was in, John the Baptist was in prison, so he sent men to ask him, Are you the one, or should we be looking for another? And Jesus answered them in verse 4. Yeah, verse 4. He said to them, Go and report to John what you see and hear. Those who are blind receive sight, those who are limp walk, those with leprosy are cleansed, and those who are deaf hear. The dead are raised, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. He was a preacher of the gospel. The next one is the word pastor. And uh, in my New American Standard Bible, which is what I study the most, uh, the only place I saw it was interpreted pastor is right here in this Ephesians passage. Everywhere else it's interpreted shepherd. The word pastor is the word shepherd. Shepherd literally means shepherd. A herdsman. One who takes care of sheep. That's what a shepherd is. No no hidden meaning there. But Jesus said in John 10, I am the good shepherd. He is the good shepherd. I mean, you could, if you want to stay with one or the other, you could say, I am the good pastor. Jesus is the good pastor. I am the good shepherd. I don't know why we don't use the word shepherd more often. It's probably more biblical, really. Um, and then finally, teacher. Teacher means teacher or instructor. Luke 4.32 says this, They were amazed at his teaching because his message was delivered with authority. Jesus is the teacher. So you can see that all five of these gifts that he gave when he ascended are expressions of his ministry. So let me ask you this. Can you see in that how he intended for his ministry not just to continue but to expand on the earth? Because... The apostle, God called the apostle to ascend, and he gave apostles, plural, right? The, the, the prophet ascended to the Father, and he sent prophets. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Remember the verse where he says uh, they wanted to see Jesus, and he said, uh, unless the kernel of wheat falls to the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it falls to the ground and dies, it will bring forth much fruit. Right? Jesus fell to the ground, died, ascended to the Father, and now there are apostles and prophets and pastors and teachers all over the place and evangelists. It's what God wants. All of us, all over the place, doing the work of the ministry. And so if you are called to one of these kinds of ministry, your example is Jesus. 
You know, I don't know. Your example is not apostle so-and-so on TV. Your example is Jesus or prophet so-and-so. Jesus is the prophet. So how he prophesied, how he ministered is what you should do if you are the prophet. All right, let's continue. Ephesians 4, back to Ephesians 4, picking up at verse 12. He says, uh, he gave me these gifts for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. God wants us to grow up into Jesus. These are the signs of a mature church. A mature church is a place where there is unity of the faith. This is not uniformity of compliance. <clears throat> compliance is what I expect from my kids. When I say, go clean your room, or go put this away. That's compliance. But by the time they're adults, if I'm going to have any kind of relationship with them at all, it's going to have to be a mutual willing relationship, right? Because once they're adults, they can just... They'll be free to do what they want to do. I won't be able to say when they're 24 years old, eat your broccoli. I don't say that to them now. Their mother does. <laughs> I have a hard time telling them to eat their broccoli. But I don't eat my broccoli. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> In the first three chapters of the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul's correcting the church because there are factions and divisions among them. He goes on and he starts telling them that you are acting like mere men, normal, just regular humans. You're like babes in Christ because there is jealousy and strife among them. Mm. Isn't that interesting that we're you're acting like mere men? Why? Well, because remember what happened in the book of Acts? What was introduced who didn't exist before? The Christians. You're supposed to live like mere men, like regular, normal human beings. In Christ, you're so much more. You're united with God. Yeah, so we shouldn't be acting like men, men, but they were, because there was these divisions and strife among them. They were saying, First uh, Corinthians three four through six. He says, "When for when one person says I'm with Paul, and another I'm with Apollos, are you not ordinary people? What then is Apollos, and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God." Was causing the growth. God was doing it. He used these different men. And here's the thing. The thing that was sent to them to bless them, to help them, Apollos and Paul and the, the different people who came through, was the very thing that they were becoming divided over. Tell me that makes any sense. God wants us to grow up. If we're going to grow into maturity, we need to have unity of faith. And i got to say, that is not unity of thought. Some churches don't always get this right. We actually need diversity of thought. We need the freedom to think and discuss. That's how we grow. The Bible talks about ironing, sharpen iron, right? Mm -hmm. You don't sharpen one another. I mean, I'm not talking about hateful, you know, strife kind of thing. But if you sharpen iron, there's some friction Right? There's some grinding sometimes. And I don't mind having discussions that grind some things off of me. 
I don't mind being challenged on what I believe, because if I can't defend it and prove it by example, maybe I need to change. I don't want to hang on to traditions or beliefs that have been handed to me that are actually hindering my progression with God. All right? So we need diversity of thought. We need to sharpen one another that way. We do. The unity that is speaking of here, the unity of faith. See, unity has to do with many parts coming together in unity as a whole. All right? Uniformity has to do with everybody being the same. We don't want uniformity. And in this world of cancel culture, where you don't like what somebody says, you just cancel it. Shut them down. Don't listen to them. Cut them off. Don't want to hear it. Don't want to be challenged. You know, the church has been doing that for a lot longer. That's not my view. If you don't like it, there's the door. That's wrong. That's wrong. If they're a brother or sister in Christ, you need to work things out. I mean, we don't have that option in the body of Christ. When Jesus comes for his church, anybody who's saved, who names his name, is going to go. We're going to be in heaven together. Why can't we get along here? Why can't we leave some room for diversity of thought and discussion and learn how to grow and make one another stronger and better, which is the goal, right? There's a big difference between unity of faith and uniformity of thought. So let's, uh, okay, uh, four Ephesians 4, 13, verse 13. He talks about until we all attain to this unity of faith. And then the next phrase there is, and of the knowledge of the Son of God. To a mature man, to the measure of the stature, which belongs to the fullness of Christ. I think Paul could say things a lot easier in modern language. To the measure of the stature, which belongs to the fullness. And it's just a lot of words. But he's talking about the knowledge of the Son of God. This here is experiential knowledge. This is knowledge by doing. Um, before I took, ever took a flying lesson, I used to make cockpits out of poster board. And I would take a piece of poster board and I would cut it out and I would cut out every instrument. I would meticulously learn what each one did, and I put the little hands on there where I could turn them, and I learned how what they were, and I learned how to read them. This is when I was, before I was, you know, I was probably 15, somewhere in there. And I would learn everything about it because I was so fascinated with it. But did I really know how to fly an airplane just because I knew where all the instruments were and they could make paper copies? Would you have jumped in an airplane with me with that much training? <laughs> no. No. But when I started flying, then I actually learned something about how to do it. This is experiential knowledge that God has for us. He wants us to grow into the knowledge of the Son of God, not just learning about the Son of God. He wants us to have knowledge of a relationship growing with him. We don't want to be like the people Paul described in 2 Timothy 3, 7, saying they were always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Get it? Always learning. Always had their head in theories and books. But he wanted them not just to be learning, but to come to knowledge of the truth. And he wants us to have the knowledge of the Son of God. Not just always learning about the Son of God. He wants to come into relationship with the Son of God. Where we have shared experiences together with the Son of God. When we grow into mature Christians, we will be doers of the word and not hearers only. As a result, verse 14, we are no longer to be children 
tossed here and there by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of people, and by the craftiness and deceitful scheming. See, children are tossed here and there by waves. You know, you ever, when you go online and you read news stories or you watch videos, I don't know about you, but I like to read the comments. Sometimes there's more, there's better information and actually more accuracy in the comments than there are in the videos. Mm -hmm. Seriously. And so you get lost in the comments. You know, I like um, just keeping with the, the flying example. I, I like watching pictures of, you know, airplanes landing, different things. And uh, I remember this one I was watching. There was this incident, and this guy made this hard landing, hit the runway, bounced up, and recovered it. And the, the first comments were talking about how terrible of a pilot he was and, and just going off on, you know, he shouldn't have his license and all this stuff. And then some experienced pilots came on, and they said, well, did you see that airplane that was flying in front of him? It was a heavy airplane. It didn't have flaps. That that condition would have created a lot of turbulence. He got caught in the turbulence and it caused him to hit the runway and his recovery was actually pretty good. It was brilliant. He saved the airplane and saved his life. So when you start reading, all of a sudden you find out who's got experience and who just knows about it. You know what I'm saying? Once you have an experience with something, you won't be fooled by people telling you about it because they just know, you know, something they've read or something they've heard, right? Right? So God wants us to come to a place where we have experiential knowledge of Jesus Christ in our relationship with him so that we will not be shaken. Because until we have that, you know, somebody comes and says, well, it works like this. And we run over here and follow this person. Well, no, it works like this. So then we run this way. But what God wants us to do is settle down, plant our feet in Jesus, have a relationship with him, and be planted and have our own experiences. You know, you, there's a lot of different people out there teaching, you know, just for instance, this is a, for instance, healing ministry, right? And uh, everybody has different ideas. And they all have an element of truth. A lot of them are doing, wouldn't you say, Rich? I mean, there's different people who are doing things. Yeah. But but when you experience it yourself, you're, you're not prone to say, oh, I got to go over here and do this because so-and-so says, you know, you know, you got to confess it 3,000 times or whatever. And so-and-so over here says, no, you got to believe. you got to believe. You know, different things. When you can walk it out yourself, and you're not running around chasing every wind of doctrine. What does a wind of doctrine mean? Doctrine means teaching. And that's the church today. We're running around going after all these different winds of teaching. And God wants to settle us down and let us have these experiences for ourselves. It's going to take time with Him. It's going to take time with the Spirit of God. It's going to be something that we we cultivate in the sense that He's provided for it through His blood and His sacrifice. But if we ignore it and give a deaf ear to it, we'll never, we'll never step into it. But it's there for us. It is there for us. So He wants us to have knowledge gained by experience with God so that we will be settled down, no longer children, so the mature people aren't tossed around, are they? The mature people can stand up to winds of doctrine, trickery of people, and craftiness in deceitful scheming. And then verse 15, he says, But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, that is Christ. Speaking the truth in love. That is totally controversial today, isn't it? <laughs> We're not free to speak the truth out there in the world. But we need to have the freedom to speak the truth to one another here. In love. 
<laughs> in love. <laughs> and now finally, verse 16. It talks about uh, speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head. That is Christ from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies. You get that? Every joint has its part. The body holds itself together by what each joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part. So when one part's not working, the whole body is not working. Okay? Causes growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. See, we are supposed to build ourselves up in love. We each have a part in this. The mature church builds the church by building up one another. That's why the church should always be a place of healing and restoration. A place uh, where we always build one another up and not tear each other down. Because when we tear one another down, we're tearing down our own progress. See, I make cabinets. So when I go out and build cabinets, I'm building cabinets right now for a house that last time I was by it last week, it was just a foundation, just a slab. So what do I need before they need cabinets? They need walls, flooring, roof, sheetrock, siding. They need a lot before they're ready for cabinets. But if I go out there and don't don't like the framer and I go kick down his work, I'm never going to get to come to my part. And so I need all of you so I can do what I'm called to do. And you need all of us so you can do what you're called to do. We all need each other so we can fit our part in there. You know, when I make comments, I coordinate probably with four or five different trades when it comes down to it, you know, because I, I got to put my cabinets in and then they run their trim up to it and the electricians pull their wires into my cabinets and then they put the plumbing up where I mark on the floor where my cabinets are going to be. After I get them in, then they come at, back and they put countertops on and then the painters come in and paint, you know, all these different things that have to be coordinated just for my part. If any one of those people miss their part, it affects my job. And that's why the best thing for any one of us is for every other of us to be doing their job the best that they can. And that's why it's our job to help, my job to help you, because by helping you, I'm helping me. When you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, I have a place to put my cabinets. <laughs> So we're a team. We need to do, each one to do their part if we're ever going to grow into that mature church. And I want to say this. I know I shared this probably a month ago or so, but um, Green Kim and I made this commitment that we would give one another the grace to grow. You've got to give each other the grace to grow. Because what happens is when you don't give people the grace to grow, you always hold them back to how they used to be. And whenever, you know, you know, whenever they start making changes and growing, because again, until we all look like Jesus, we all need to grow. Everybody needs to grow and be progressing in this thing. And so as we progress, it's really easy to look at somebody and judge them the way they used to be. Well, you've always been like this. And then you pull them back and you don't let them go. You've got to give each other the grace to grow. And I want to see that happen too, right here in this church. Because as people, you know, people come in, they're a certain way, but they're, they're not going to stay that way. Jesus is changing them. They're growing into the image of the fullness of Christ. And we need to not say, well, you, you've been like that since you came. No, maybe they were. Maybe they were wrong. But they can change. 
I mean, the, the hope is that we can change. We don't have to be the way we've been. The problems that we've come, come in here with, we don't have to keep. We can grow. We can be different. We need to give one another that grace. Amen? Amen. So in conclusion, I can't take responsibility for the church from years past. But I can take responsibility for the rest of my life. You know? In 30 years, look how far they've advanced in the book of Acts. I mean, they just stepped into that stuff running. So, you know, in the 40 years I have, 50 or however many years I'm going to live, what, how far can I go and go? And how far can we go together as a church? If we each take responsibility for the church, for one another in the church, how far can we go in God? I think we can grow very quickly. We have a great foundation. I don't know how far the church will actually go before Jesus comes back, but I do know this. He's coming for a spotless and blameless bride. Ephesians 5.27 says that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. You know, the Bible tells us not to be an unequally yoked. We use that as a passage to tell believers not to marry unbelievers or whatever. Jesus is not coming for a church that is not like him. He's coming for a church that is like him. You get it? So we got a little ways to go. But the good thing is, he wants us to go there. And he'll help us. I don't know, I can't take responsibility for, you know, what we've done since Pentecost. Or or what we've done since the Reformation or anything. But I can take responsibility starting today for the rest of my life. To press into these things. To build on that foundation. To grow in God. And to help you build. To help you grow. To help you fulfill your calling and your mission. And I would ask you guys in prayer as I pray to, um, Bruce, if you want to come up, if you want to, uh, if you'll make that commitment with me too. As I pray, if this is your prayer too, just agree with it. Um, commit to helping one another. Father God, we love you. We thank you for your word here. We thank you that at the ascension, that you gave us these gifts so that you could grow us up into Christ. I thank you, Lord, that it is your word and your plan and your desire and your will that we be like you on the earth. I thank you that Jesus is our example. We are supposed to be like Jesus. Lord, I thank you for these ministry gifts, Lord. I ask that you increase them here in this house, Lord. I ask that you teach us how to flow more and more in the gifts that you have for us. Gifts of prophecy and in tongues and interpretation and words of wisdom and faith, words of knowledge, gifts of healings and gifts of miracles, Lord. Things that only you can do among us. Lord, we we seek, we eagerly desire these gifts and we eagerly desire the greater gifts. Lord, increase us in that way. And Lord, on our part, I make this commitment, Lord, to pursue you and to grow in this and see how far I can go before you call me home or come back for me. Lord, and I make that commitment not only for myself, but for my family and for this body here, Lord, the church that we are a part of, that we are fellowshipping with. Lord, I make the commitment to help them grow to the fullest potential so that they can do what they are called to do, so that I can also do what I am called to do. 
Lord, I thank you for that. I thank you for what you are doing among us. It has been very, very sweet. And we look forward to growing and this becoming more normal and more normal as you continue to amaze us with crazy things that we've not even imagined yet. We thank you for this, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.